Welcome to Book, the Warmed and Bound Sessions. I'm Lydia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Warmed and Bound is an anthology published by Velvet Press consisting of 38 short stories, all by authors who are members of or involved in The Velvet, which is an online community of authors and fans of the trio Will Christopher Bear, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. Warmed and Bound was released on Friday, July 22nd. Nick Corpon is the author of the novel Stay God and the noir novellas Old Ghosts and By the Nails of the War Priest. His stories have ruined the reputation of Out of the Gutter, Do Some Damage, 3AM, and Everyday Genius, among others. He's a fiction editor for Rotten Leaves Magazine, a book reviewer, and a co-host of Last Sunday, Last Rites, a monthly reading series in Baltimore, Maryland. He received a master's degree in creative writing from Birkbeck College in London, England, and now lives in Baltimore. Nick was kind enough to join us on Booked, spend some time talking to us about his appearance in Warmed and Bound. Nick, uh, thanks a lot for coming on to talk to us a little bit. We've been looking forward to talking to you for a while. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Nick, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your story, This Will All End Well. Well, the story, it started from a, an NPR um, show, actually. It was the, the show called The Story. There was this guy who was talking about um, he, his grandfather was in World War II. And as they were uh, they were clearing out all the bunkers on the I don't know the German shore or something like that, and um, they had to burn all burn down all the bunkers after they cleared them so that the Germans couldn't take them back. And his grandfather found this German soldier in one of the top bunks who had his um, I guess his back was broken or his neck was broken or something like that. So the guy basically like pulled or the German guy was saying you know please don't leave me don't let me die. So the uh, the grandfather uh, dragged him off the top bunk. And uh, dragged him up the steps of the bunker, and this is all with, you know, like a, a fractured back or whatever it is, and all his vertebrae grinding against each other. And uh, he uh, he dragged him outside, and then he just left the guy for his countrymen to find. And uh, it was the way that he he told it, it was just it was very vivid, and just I could feel like my back kind of grinding against itself mm. when he was talking about it, and the the feeling just kind of stuck with me. So I, I knew that I really wanted that image in some kind of story. And uh, the story itself, I just wanted to write something really short that continually changed the reader's perspective. You know, like every, I don't know, 250 or 500 words or whatever it ended up being. So you're constantly in flux on, you know, like who the, the sympathy lies with. Okay. Uh, how about you tell us about how you got started or involved with The Velvet? I don't think that I was actually a lurker for too long. I think I signed up pretty quickly. I found out about the Velvet in 2006. I think it was like the summer of 2006. I had just gotten into a, a master's program in England, and I was getting ready to leave uh, that fall. So I took the summer off um, of work and you know just like surfed and hung out and uh, read as much as I can to try and you know get ready for the uh, for the course. And I read, I'd become obsessed with, uh, with Chuck Palahniuk or Palahniuk or however you say his name is, you know, I guess maybe like two years before. Um, and him and Irvine Welsh really got me reading a whole lot. Um, and then from Chuck, I found Chris Bear and Craig Clevenger. And I had finally tracked down a copy of The Contortionist Handbook, and it completely changed my outlook on, you know, writing and what people could do with stories. And it was just this... Uh, it's an eye-opening experience. So um, I, I don't know, Googled him or something like that and found the Velvet. And um, 
yeah, I've kind of been there ever since. I've met a, I've met a, you know hundreds of really really nice people, and actually most of my closer friends have come from the Velvet and Wright Club, which I don't know what that says about my uh, social skills. That most of my friends are online, but yeah, I've been there for a little while. And I, I love it there. This is going to sound really kind of backhanded, and I guess I don't mean it that way. But uh, the the frequent the frequent answer to that question is is pretty much exactly that. Found Polinick, found the cult, found the velvet, found Clevenger. Um, how do you think that makes Chuck Polinick feel? <laughs> well, I think I think it can go two ways. I mean, one, he's, you know, we, we've had this conversation on Right Club, and I know that a couple people have, um, have already talked about Right Club on here, and I think we had the conversation on The Velvet, too. But um, for a lot of us, Chuck was kind of like a, people refer to him as like a, a gateway author or whatever, <laughs> where he was the one who really opened our eyes to what books could do. And it was like, like when you read The Outsiders or Catcher in the Rye or something when you're 13 and hate your parents and, you know, paint your fingernails black all the time, it was just this eye-opening experience to what you know that there were other people out there who were doing the things that you wanted to do or who understood what you were um so i i would like to think that he would be kind of flattered you know that he was uh, that he was such a, a gigantic influence on so many writers and you know showed us that you could be fucked up and funny and sad and you know all these things at the same time and and you could do all these with books. You didn't have to just read, you know, whatever you read in crappy high school courses. I never read any of them, so I don't really, I couldn't really tell you what they were. I don't know, Canterbury Tales, how's that? And like I said, I, I don't mean any disrespect for that. I found the Velvet and Clevenger Bear the same way. Um, it's just, it's, it's just so funny to hear it. Like, you know, like you said, he's a gateway author and here's where, you know, I don't know, 10 interviews in and we've heard almost this exact same story across the board. So it's kind of, it's just after a while you start thinking like, wow, you know, everybody praises uh, Clevenger who I, and I agree. Um, it's just so odd, I guess, to hear so many people say it and not kind of just address it, that it's how it happened for everybody. Well, I think that with, with the, you know, the trio, I think that um, Clevenger and Chris Bear were definitely the biggest influences on me um, initially, and I didn't. The Contortionist Handbook is such a such a powerful book that like that was the one that really hit me, um, or that hit me immediately or grabbed me immediately, and it took a little bit longer for me to really understand how great of a book um, Kiss Me Judas and well the whole Phineas Poe trilogy was. And I didn't get into Stephen's books until a little bit later because the first ones that I had read were um, The Fast Red Road and uh, The Bird is Gone. And I, they're good books, but it was just, it's kind of like uh, like Evanson, like it was operating on some level that I just completely could not comprehend. So I just didn't, I didn't have the attachment to it. And then I read, um, you know, like Demon Theory and uh, Long Trial of Noah and Dugati and Nolan Dugati is one of the few books that I've finished in one day and then started reading immediately. I think I started, I did that with Pike from Ben Whitmer and um, Postman Always Rings Twice, which is one of my favorite books ever. So I didn't, I don't think I was ready for Steven because I didn't really understand, you know, kind of like the realm that he was working in or whatever. And um, so I, I guess that's why I gravitated towards uh, Craig and Chris before Steven. 
I don't know if that really answers any kind of question, but <laughs> if it does or doesn't, talk. it was it was interesting. So that's cool. <laughs> Circling back just a little bit, uh, as far as when your writing started, were you writing before you discovered uh, Polynic and everything? And if so, do you see any kind of difference between then and now? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I've been writing for. I've been writing stuff for a long time. I came up in punk rock bands. Um, I was playing in bands since I was like, I don't know, 13 or so. And I always wrote these really bad, you know, Nirvana-esque um, <laughs> songs that were just awful. And then uh, I played in a bunch of punk rock bands through high school and college. And I was always the singer because I'm an adequate guitar player, but I can't really do anything else. Once I got out of that, I read a bunch of beat stuff, and I thought that I was like the reincarnation of Jack Kerouac, like most you know twenty-three year olds do. <laughs> and it was just this kind of <laughs> this awful, over dramatic, you know, like trying to be esoteric, but just basically drivel bullshit. And uh, I didn't really start writing seriously until I don't know. I guess right until I um, I applied for the for the masters, and they. The reason that they took me into the program, I had a, uh, a phone interview, and I started arguing with the uh, with the program director about why Irvine Welsh wasn't any good because it was all just um, we were talking about train spotting. It was just you know like vignettes, and there wasn't really any overarching theme and all or uh, overarching plot and just all this kind of stuff. And they said that my uh, my writing sample showed a lot of energy. And they later confided at the at the pub afterwards that it was really kind of shit, but they they thought that it had potential, I guess. So I guess there's that. Um, I'm gonna hate to actually admit this on the show. Um, I've been trying to read Stay God for a week now, but with interviews and work and other things, I've managed to get almost halfway into it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Sure. It's set in Baltimore, like uh, like most of my stuff is. And it's a story about a guy called Damon who um, deals drugs out of a secondhand store that he runs with his girlfriend, Mary. And uh, Mary wants to get married. Damon doesn't. So there's that kind of tension. And um, Christian is the best friend of Damon. And he runs a um, record store down the street. And uh, Damon gets hit with a proposition and uh, he makes a bad decision, and pretty much everyone pays after that. Mostly Damon pays, but... And it's kind of... I, it was something that I wanted to write for a while. Like, it was sort of... Um, I'm trying not to rehash this, because I just wrote an essay about it for uh, Crime Factory, and I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to plagiarize myself. Um, but it was just... I just kind of wanted to write the book that I wanted to write. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or the, the the book that I wanted to read, rather. And, uh, you know, it's got, like, kind of goofy, pseudo-philosophical um, conversations about whether Freddy Krueger or uh, Wolverine would win in a fight. And they take in, you know, like the different diegetic levels of their battle and all this kind of stuff. Um, very enjoyable stuff so far, by the way. And I awesome. keep kicking myself for not having more time to spend with it. And Dick, so I was trying to read some of it on lunch at work today before we got into the interview, but I figured I wouldn't get half of it done. I did manage to notice, as far as I've gotten in the book, that you uh, found a way to mention pretty much everybody that uh, you're friends with at the Velvet in the book, though. <laughs> I told Rob this beforehand. I'm like, there's a chapter, and in there, I'm pretty sure I recognize every single name as either somebody we're interviewing or somebody who's frequently on the velvet. 
what did you think of that? Like, did that pull you out of the story? Or was it kind of like a fun thing? Or I thought it was a really neat thing. Um, and, and I didn't find it pulled me out of the story. I mean, all right, how do I say this? Like, you have to assume that not everybody that reads the book recognizes all those names. So to them, it yeah. means absolutely nothing. You, you know what I mean? It's just a bunch of character names. But, you know, I go through and the bartender's named Dwyer and I go, okay, he didn't at least didn't call him Chris. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I recognized all of it. So assuming your larger audience doesn't, A, the people who are in there are probably really flattered. Um, B, um, anybody who doesn't recognize it, it doesn't mean anything to them. So I thought it was kind of cool. And if I ever wrote a book, I would probably do very much the same thing. Cool. So I didn't I didn't think it was a problem at all. I actually, like I said, I like have this note in the back of my head to mention it, and I can't think of any way of saying it other than, hey, nice job mentioning everybody that's in the velvet, <laughs> which doesn't really say anything. So uh, it was one of the um, it was one of the criticisms that had come up with it, and I actually I, I thought it I thought that it bordered on not like childish, but kind of like I don't know something about it bothered me. But then, Liv, when you were saying that, you know, like most of the people have no idea what I'm talking about, you know, unless you're within that little insular community, you have no idea. So that makes me feel better about it. I mean, I would think to myself, like, hey, that's cool. My buddy just mentioned me in a book. But somebody else reading it who has no idea who I am would just be like, man, what a weird character name to pick. You know, I mean, so I don't think that it's I don't think that it's an issue. I think the people that would recognize it would be flattered unless they're one of the ones you didn't include. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, you know, so and and everybody else would be like, hey, that's really cool. He named me in his book, and everybody else would be like, Meh, whatever character names. Yeah, so. and I guess from my perspective, the way I think of it is like the goal with when you're naming characters is just to have them as you know real and normal as possible. I'm assuming, and if you've got a group of people that's real and normal in real life, wouldn't that just kind of make it real and normal? I don't know. That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, I guess that's true. Because you know it's yeah. So anyway, <laughs> a couple times I got to uh, poke fun at my friends too. So that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Make them do ridiculous things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so you're the editor of several um, online magazines. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I'm a, a fiction editor for Rotten Leaves magazine and an associate editor for uh, Dirty Noir magazine. And um, Rotten Leaves is kind of uh, Axel Terry and Chris Dwyer founded it, and um, I had a story in the first issue, and I've known those two guys for a while. Um, so I asked if they needed any help, and I ended up becoming an editor for it. And um, Rotten Leaves is uh, a, a dark fiction um, online zine, and we do one story a week, and we kind of post up, you know, like random stuff that's related to writing or stuff that we think our readers would like. And um, it's pretty much open to anything that's dark and well-written, you know, like fantasy, sci-fi, uh, crime noir, whatever it is. And Dirty Noir is a zine that was started by Doc O'Donnell. And um, he had up, a, I guess, the inaugural issue of uh, six stories or so, and then I was talking to him and told him that, you know, if he needed any help reading submissions, I'd be happy to help. And um, I ended up somehow becoming a, an assistant editor there with uh, Brad Green, who's um, he's also an, an editor over at Pank. Um, and that's uh, focused mainly on, you know, like crime noir. Noir is such a slippery, weird <laughs> label anyway. It's like the, the dirty version of postmodern. It doesn't really mean anything. 
so we just we just want something that's uh well written and kind of sle- tastefully sleazy it's funny that you say that we had anthony neil smith on a couple of months ago and he had commented about how he's so sick of people asking what noir is and it's after he said that as you know i'm looking through twitter and you know we follow a, a, a bunch of authors on twitter and that question comes up so frequently and every time i do i now have a totally <laughs> different just a whole different outlook on it and you're right i mean it means it's Noir encompasses so much, and some of the answers are actually pretty good. But I think that when you read noir, you just know it, and nobody needs to tell you that or to label it. Yeah. Uh, and I think there are some people that are starting to write noir that don't really know that they're getting into that category. There's some authors I've read that would never describe their work as noir, but as I'm reading it, I can see it, and I can see the direction they're heading in as authors kind of going just into the darker, kind of bleaker stuff. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's a label like anything else. I don't think we're ever going to see noir at, uh, well, we're never going to see it at Borders because they're closing, but I don't think we're ever going to see a <laughs> section at, at Barnes & Noble for, for noir. But I think the people that really enjoy it know what it is and recognize it and don't really need so much a label on it. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was funny. I was at NoirCon when, uh, when Neil was doing that panel and watching him <laughs> go into a, a little bit of a tirade when Megan Abbott was sitting next to him and she's like, all tiny and cute, and he was getting all freaked out and angry. I love that guy. He's such a writer <laughs> and such a great definer of terms. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely an interesting guy to talk to. Um, I know you've only been editing for both of those for a little while now, but it's something that's come up because we don't get to talk to many editors, and it's something we talked to Pela Via about. How do you think editing and writing influence each other? Um, and to clarify a little bit, do you think the way you write you write influences the way you edit? And do you think that through editing, it's going to influence the way you write? I think that the way that I write, it influences the way that I that I edit, but it shouldn't. It unfairly influences the way that I edit because I write the way that I do because I like how it sounds. So I like stories that sound like that but i don't want to read people who write the same thing that i do you know what i mean and so i i try and consciously you know like step away from that but i i i like i like stories that are well written and that you know have good images and that actually do something to me whether it piss me off enrage me um make me sad make me laugh whatever um and i think that the the way that or editing has definitely influenced the way that I rewrite, not so much the way that I write, because the the first draft is always just a mad scramble to to get it out just so that it's down and I can stop obsessing over it for, you know, a day or two until I start revising it. But it's definitely shown me a lot of things not to do. You know, I think that you learn more from the bad stuff than you do from the good stuff. Which is unfortunate because if you read too much of the bad stuff, it sort of starts to seep in and you start making the stupid mistakes that you nail people for. <laughs> I guess if you read enough of it, it sounds starts to seem acceptable. So if everybody yeah, exactly. else is doing it, yeah. Which well, is thank why you for I your honesty. Papers yeah. while I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be a little bit of a drawback from a career standpoint, yeah. But thank you for your honesty on that. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I think Chris Deal echoed what you said a little bit when we interviewed him. He said, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he, I think the biggest takeaway from we asked him about editing was that he said you've learned what not to do. Yeah, and it's a great, it's a great exercise. I um, 
I read for McAdam Cage maybe like two years ago or something like that. We were, I was one of their first readers for maybe like five months, six months, something like that. I read something like 15 books or like 15 whole books in the beginning of more or something like that. And from reading, you know, there were, there were a number of books that you would read the first, I don't know, 30, 40 pages. And you're just like, I am bored out of my gourd by this. I do not want to read anymore. And you have to read, you know, like 50 or 70 pages or whatever it was. And it's just, it, it definitely, I'm not opposed to books that have an explosion in the first page, but you don't, you don't need that, but you need to have some kind of impetus to keep reading. And, um, things like that have definitely taught me what not to do, I guess, though, by reading the book that I just finished, you would never know that. But yeah, they, it, it definitely shows you a lot of the pitfalls that to, um, to try to avoid in, in your own writing. Livius would argue that um, somehow the Pale King squeaked past that then because it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a snoozer, I think, throughout. Wow, yeah. <laughs> just a I've little ne- bit. I've never understood David Foster Wallace. I just I can't get into him. <laughs> there's not enough boobs in explosions. I think. There, there, there's only two camps. It's you love it or you hate it, and everybody is really passionate about it. And I... Yeah. <laughs> Again, The Pale King, probably a really, really bad way for me to read David Foster Wallace. Because, see, I, I, I go on and I defend him and I go, you know, if he actually got a chance to finish it and went through an editing process, you know, this might have been a really good book. And then Rob goes, no, that's how his stuff is. So, <laughs> I had a story in a journal with him like five years ago or something like that. And I always meant to read it. And I just, I've never had the urge to read it. He's one of those people that just kind of seems so far... I don't know, out there or something that I just, yeah. I don't know, I just, I just can't be bothered to read. <laughs> uh, well, taking the term or the word readings in a different light, uh, do you want to tell us about uh, some of the readings that you've done lately? Like, I think, um, I know Sean Ferguson mentioned he did a reading with you, and I think you just told us you did one um, very recently as well. Yeah, um, we, uh, the first time that, uh, actually the first time that I met Ferg in person was at, um, a reading that I did with um, Jesus Angel Garcia. Mm-hmm. We read in uh, at Farley's Bookstore in uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is this really, really weird town. It's like a, um, it's this little antique town right on the river, but there's all these bikers that just cruise the main strip. <laughs> so, so me and Jesus are standing out like on chairs trying to scream at people because people just walk past us and they don't, a couple of people made eye contact, but most people would just walk past and pretend like they didn't see us. And Jesus does this performance piece with his book, and he uh, he does this preacher bit, and he starts yelling out, like, AIDS, abortion, you're going to die. And he's screaming it through a bullhorn, and people just ignore us. I'm like, you know that we're standing right here. Just at least, it doesn't that even pique your interest the slightest bit? So I, I had fun doing it. I mean, no one... No one else really cared, but me and Jesus and Sean had a blast. <laughs> and then, uh, actually, Sean came down from uh, from Jersey again last night. Um, I read with Jesus again in Baltimore, and um, it was like a big, I don't know, big weird multimedia thing. He did some some music and some films and stuff, and I read from old ghosts. And uh, Adam Adam Robinson and Stephanie Barber read and did this like ukulele play school keyboard ensemble 
type thing or something. I don't really know what it was, but it was interesting. Um, but I, I like readings. I, we did a podcast about this over at um, The Velvet with Ben Tanzer and uh, Ryan Bradley and uh, Brandon Teets about reading and how readings, you should fuck up when you're reading because there's no point. It's, it's like, a, like going to see a show. You don't want to see a band play the song exactly how it is on the CD because you can listen to the CD in your car or in your room and the beer is free and you don't have a whole bunch of sweaty people bumping up against you. Like you want to go to the show to see bands screw up and throw the guitars all over the place and, you know, kids jumping off the speakers and stuff like that. In the same way you want to go to a reading to have some kind of experience. And, you know, I screw up all the time when I read, but I like to think at least that it's a little more of a, um, an experience, I guess, than just reading the book. And if anyone really wants to see what a true performance is, see, um, watch, catch Jesus and Hale Garcia or uh, Scott McClanahan. Those are two of the best performers I've ever seen. It's just, it literally is like an experience watching them. You mentioned Old Ghosts, which is your, uh, I believe, your most current release. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Old Ghosts is set in Baltimore as well. It's about a, a, a guy called Cole who fled boston uh to baltimore after some after some bad shit went down and uh his wife amy doesn't know about any of this stuff and uh the old ghosts of course follow him because you can never outrun your past um and his old ghosts are uh cole and i'm sorry uh chance and delilah who are a brother and sister who he used to roll with up in boston and one of chance's guys stabbed cole in the stomach because he used Chance's name in public, and that's kind of the jumping-off point. It's sort of looking at... Actually, I, I wrote that as, because I was obsessed with um, Californication, mm-hmm. and I wanted to write a Californication, like my version of it, and somehow that came out. I'm not it's really obs- sure. It's an obsession all three of us share. <laughs> I love that book, or that show. Actually, I, I'm writing a review right now for um, Every Shallow Cut uh, by Tom Piccarelli. And if you if you want to see kind of like the dark, grotesque, super gritty version of Californication, it's every shallow cut because it's like it's about a writer who's, you know, down and out and finding his way and stuff like that. But the same way that Californication is kind of uh, like writer's porn or whatever it is, every shallow cut is I, I think is almost the same thing. But it's it is so, so well written, like every sentence just sings off the page. So, so far we've heard a few different uh, perspectives on a story that Chris Dwyer started to tell us about where um, you guys were all at, <laughs> at the AWP. I, it was it in, I think in Colorado, right? And, um, yeah, in Denver. Yeah, and uh, you guys watched Paranormal Activity one night and it was quite the exciting experience. Do you have anything uh, to add to it from your perspective? Well, all right. So me, Chris, Axel, and Richard were in their room and... Richard, they were all being big sissies, but Richard was the biggest sissy of them. So I guess Axel felt bad or wanted to comfort him. So he he started spooning Richard to, you know, make sure that he, I don't know, the ghost didn't get him or whatever. So they were they were all freaking out about it, and I was watching, and I'm like, you know, this isn't really that scary of a movie. But I was sitting on the side, so I kept, or you know, kind of off to the side of them. So I kept scratching my fingers on the upholstery of the chair. So it makes this little scratching noise. And uh, I would tap my ring against the uh, the metal post of the lamp. So it was just the little tinging and scratching and whatever. 
they were all getting freaked out. And I, I just thought it was incredibly funny. <laughs> and then about halfway through the movie, I started getting scared myself. Until the ghost found her picture, or like brought up her picture. I was like, you know, is this ghost fucking carrying her picture around in its phantom pocketbook or something? It, just, <laughs> it lost me at that point. So, Rob, Rob, have you seen the movie? No, I, I haven't. Uh, yeah, sorry if I spoiled it for anyone, but uh, it's like the Blair Witch. I don't know. <laughs> it's been out long enough that if you haven't seen it, you deserve to have it spoiled. Yep, but I agree. The- I- I liked it as a movie. I just kept the only thing I kept thinking is why wouldn't they close that bedroom door? Yeah, yeah it just it, it sat open it, during all the videos and it would like slam shut and like weird things would happen. Like you would think they just close and lock the door. But, yeah. yeah, no movie. So then the extra part of that movie or of that story is that you know like we all said our goodbyes and went back home or whatever. Um, actually, the the day that we watched it earlier that day, I got a call from my best friend's mom, who was also uh, my wife and mine's real estate agent. And the people who we were offering to buy the house from had accepted. So we learned that we were going to buy our first house and we were super excited about it and all that. So I go home and uh, we were closing two days later. And uh, we get the keys, we go to the house, we're all excited, you know, we start getting it ready and stuff. And then we finally have our first night in the house. And we sleep up in the guest bedroom because our other bedrooms were getting painted and stuff like that. And we're laying there, and I keep hearing all of these noises. And there's, like, thumping down the steps, and there's all these weird noises and stuff. So a couple days later, Richard, Axel, and Chris got an email that that said something along the lines of, Fuck you. You sons of bitches haunted my house. I'm out. (laughs) Very nice. Well, listen, I have exciting news for for all of you guys. Um, It looks like Paranormal Activity 3 will be out in October. So if you're at the AWP again this year, you might still be able to catch it on pay-per-view there if you guys want to have another another viewing party. (laughs) I'll make sure Axel brings a body pillow so he doesn't (laughs) violate Richard again. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Moving back to more more serious subject matter now. Now that we've gotten that out of the way with all parties involved, <laughs> uh, you've been the popular answer to this next question. So we've kind of been waiting to have you on so we can hear a different name. Um, you give us one author you'd like to see us review here on Booked. Yeah, I tried to think of this because I listen to your guys' podcasts all the time, and I tried. I knew that this one and who I was looking forward to seeing in the anthology was going to come up, and I had tried to prepare a good response. And I, <laughs> Completely forgot who I said. I'd say Jesus, Jesus and Hal Garcia. He's he's a really entertaining guy. He will definitely give you a uh, an interesting podcast, and he has a lot of good things to say. Have you read uh, much of the anthology of Much of Warmed and Bound so far? I read some of the stories that um, that people had in workshop. Okay. So I read. Uh, I think I read Chris Dwyer's, and Axel sent me his just to read. Oh, I'm sorry, not Chris Dwyer, Chris Deals. Um, I think I read Richard's. I got to proofread Paul Tremblay's, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> it's it's such a good story. And it was cool because I was teaching his book in my class too. So it was it's kind of it's related to the the Little Sleep, um, his novel that I was teaching alongside the Big Sleep. But I I'm really looking forward to reading um Craig Clevenger's. You know, he doesn't have too much stuff out and uh pretty much any new Clevenger's totally awesome for me and i i we he posted up i think like i don't know the first hundred words or something like that and it just sounds awesome and i it's a story that he wrote that 
he I think he said he he wanted to write a story that he would never show anyone, and then it, that ended up going in there. So it it's got to be pretty awesome. I think I said awesome like six times in that response. <laughs> You're talking um, about Craig, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I, I I've read the story. It, it, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, um, Pela was nice enough to to give us a PDF so there, so we could kind of prepare for um, these interviews and everything and. I haven't read, you know, more than just for the through the the stories that the people were interviewing. So I haven't even read. I've had access to Clevenger's story for, you know, however long we've had the thing, and I haven't I haven't looked at it yet. So it's a it's an unusual amount of restraint for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick, what are we going to see from you next? I have a novella coming out uh, sometime next month in August. And uh, it's called By the Nails of the War Priests. It's kind of like a future dystopian, dirty, grimy, noiry type thing. Um, that's coming out on Outsider Writers Press. I just gave away two copies of Stake God on Goodreads. And um, alongside that, I did a, a free mini collection called Baltimore Stories Volume 1 that I gave away for free on Smashwords. And I'm about to do another... Uh, giveaway of old ghosts so i'll be give, also giving away baltimore uh baltimore stories volume two on smash smash words i have a, a novel that i'm revising now and uh, i just wrote another one a couple weeks ago that i'm gonna let sit and ferment for a while <laughs> great hey um is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or plug that we may have neglected to mention so far i just had a story come out in the uh the Blackheart Noir issue that Jimmy Calloway is edited, and it, it's a fantastic um, issue. It's a, I guess it's a standal, it's a standalone. They usually do weekly stuff, but there are, it's all seven hundred word flash stories, and there are so many good writers in there that the issue is just stacked top to bottom. It's amazing, um, and I've got another story in Crime Factory number seven that I think comes out next week, so it would be the the end of July. That I, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard from the editors that it, they think it's their best issue yet, despite my story. <laughs> <laughs> and where can where can people get a hold of you? Uh, my website is nickcorpon.com, uh, N-I-K-K-O-R-P-O-N, and I'm on you know Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. There will be links to most of the stuff that uh, you mentioned up on our website, along with your interview. <laughs> awesome. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to come talk to us on Booked. Good luck with your novella release. And uh, we look forward, well, I personally look forward to finishing Stay God and look forward to some more of your stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And you guys are doing a fantastic job with this. <laughs> I, I know that everyone's thanked you, but it, it really is. I've already said awesome, so it's bitchin'. How's that? <laughs> very well, nice. We like bitchin'. <laughs> thanks. Okay, yes, and a big thanks once again to Nick for coming on. We've been waiting a while to talk to him, so we're thankful we got a minute. Uh, you can look for more information on his writings at nickcorpon.com. We'll have links on our website for that as well. And don't forget to check out his story, This Will All End Well, which appears in Warmed and Bound. That came out on Friday, July 22nd. That wraps up another episode of Booked. I'm Olivia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Check back tomorrow for another Warmed and Bound session. And it's getting strange in here Yeah, it's getting stranger every year More news from nowhere More news 
that Betty White minus that fatal chromosome.